life under the sun on memory lane. It comes to us, if you look there in chapter 7 of the book of Ecclesiastes, with verse 10. In verse 10 he says, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? Being thankful for these spiritual experiences of the past and not recognizing what God is doing in our life today is a serious mistake. Don't think that it's only for uh, older people. Because, you know, there are many who have gone through Christian high school and had a blessed time there and then gone to Christian colleges or gone to some university and there in that university met with a wonderful Christian group and you had a great, wonderful time in the Lord with those people and you studied the Word and you memorized scriptures and you prayed together and all your spiritual life was a blessed one back there in those days. But then the transition from that experience to the office, to the firm, to the shop has been too difficult. And today your Christian life does not have that send zing as it did back when you were in college or back when you were in that high school and you wonder why and you say, why aren't the days as good as they were in those days? You see, it's not only old folks who get on uh, this live on memory lane. Memory lane is not an exclusive adult club. It comes from young people as well. And it's a street that goes nowhere. Now Solomon deals with this subject in the same way that he dealt with the other street by pointing out to us a series of proverbs that contrast and challenge our thinking. And the first verse we want to see, the first of these proverbs is given to us in verse 8. He says, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Very few would disagree with this. In our culture, we have similar proverbs. All is well that ends well. The battle, not the, the, the war, not the battle is important. Very few of us, however, do not have paths that are littered with unfinished paths. Some specialize in innovation. Uh, many months ago, we had a young man come before the district ministerial examining board. And as he talked with us, he mentioned the fact that this was one of his strong points. He was, oh, he was, he was an innovator. He spoke of it as though it were a spiritual gift. But God doesn't want us merely to begin things. He is concerned with us finishing them. God expects us not only to be innovators, but finishers. 
chapter 3 informs us that he has given to each of us a task to do and he has told us that our joy in this life comes in doing the task which he has committed to us. Will you look back, please, at chapter 5, where he brings to the end his discussion of chapters 3, 4, and 5, and he climaxes it by saying this in verse 18, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor which in which he toiled under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Jesus put it this way. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. And then he moves on, and he brings us to the second thing that he wants us to see. And that is a contrast between pride and anger versus patience. Look at it there in verse 9 and 10. Or actually, it's, it's in verses 8 and 9, the last part of verse 8 and, and verse 9. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of who? Who? Hasty anger is born of the sting of defeat. It is the illegitimate child of pride. Not all anger is sin. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says to us, Be angry and yet do not sin. However, all too often what we call righteous anger is no more than our response to what we think is an interruption and an interference with our assumed rights. Now, the specific anger about which Solomon is concerned is that anger which results from being threatened or perhaps intimidated by problems and conflicts which we fear is going to stop us from achieving our goal. We become angry when we take our eyes off the goal and fasten them on people whom we imagine can stop us. You see, pride and anger come from a misplaced faith. Pride and anger represent a self, an attitude of self-inflated importance. 
It's as we say, get out of the way. Don't hinder me. Don't interfere with my program. God can't get this thing done without me and the way I'm doing it. Now, we wouldn't say it that boldly, but that's what anger does really say. You see, there's a narrow line between pride and faith, and that line shows up usually at the point of anger and impatience. I heard a young man say not long ago, but I'm just naturally impatient. Who ain't? Pardon me. But there are no buts in the area of impatience as far as the Scripture is concerned. Impatience is never condoned. And it's certainly not a spiritual gift. Impatience kept Moses from the promised land. Impatience robs each of us all the time of the blessings of God's work in our lives. When it comes right down to it, what is impatience? I'd like to share with you five things. First, patience is to visualize the goal which God has for your life. Visualize it from the promises given in the Word. We search the Scriptures. We grasp the promises of God. And through it, He challenges us to reach out and claim his promises and let him fulfill those promises in our life. And we move out to walk with him and to work with him, expecting him to fulfill those promises. Patience is based on that. Secondly, patience is a total commitment of oneself to the lordship of Jesus Christ for the accomplishment of these goals. Please notice, patience is not a total commitment of oneself to one's goals. Not merely that. It is that, but not merely that. In fact, one of the sources of impatience is total commitment to one's goals. And woe betide the person that gets in the way. Patience is total commitment of oneself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ for the accomplishment of one's goals. One is committed to these goals because the promises of God give us them. But it's this commitment to Jesus Christ who will control the way in which we reach the goal. Thirdly, patience 
is trust in Christ to overcome all obstacles that will confront us. And through the Holy Spirit who is within us to accomplish the task he has given to us. Patience is trust in Christ to take us and help us gain the victory over the problem. Help us to accomplish the fact of what God wants us to do in the face of the opposition. Patience is a trust in Christ to do this through us by the work of his Holy Spirit. And fourth, patience is to put our hand to the task each and every day and to hang in there until he completes his work through us. The fifth one I find over in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. I want you to see it with me. We don't have time to go through the scriptures for the others, but I want to go through this one. It says, and not only this, he says, but we exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, it says here, or patience, as it says it in the new in, in, in the King James. What is patience? It is to recognize that the trials and problems, the momentary defeats and setbacks that come into our experience are not going to keep us from completing the task which God has given to us. Defeat, trials, setbacks are tribulations which lead to the achievement of the goal and do not stop us. And they lead us to patience. Having pointed this out, so Kohelet goes on and he makes his third comparison for us beginning with verse 10. And he's dealing with today versus yesterday and he says do not say why is it that the former days were better than these notice please first of all he tells us what not to say or to ask do not say the good old days are better than today there's an example of this in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, where the people of Israel, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, came back to the land and back to the situation of Jerusalem, and there they rebuilt the temple of God. When they completed the work, they gathered to dedicate the temple to the Lord. And on that day of dedication, there were two sounds that came from the camp of Israel. First of all, there was the sound of those who had built the temple. They were rejoicing. They were praising God. They were singing hallelujah. They now had a temple in which to worship Jehovah. And their hearts were overjoyed with 
joy and praise because of the fulfillment of the day. But among them, there was another group. They were the ones who had seen the temple of Solomon in all of its glory and all of its grandeur. And as they looked at this new temple and they compared it with that glorious temple of Solomon, they burst out crying. And from the camp came the two things. Those who were praising God for the new temple and the wonderful opportunity to praise and worship God in that temple and the others who were wailing about the good old days. This temple was so small in comparison to the old temple. Now that's a common phenomena that we find today among the people of God. You know, some of us look back and remember the days in the past when we had greater physical vigor and freedom from pain. And believe it or not, the good old days were better than today. I can remember when I used to be able to hang on to a golf club. Now I have to tie it on with some kind of a contraption. The good old days were better. Some, as I pointed out before, remember in their spiritual experience the time when you were with a discipleship group and how you grew and how you became strong in the Lord. But the day doesn't seem to be so full of joy as it was during those days. And we're reminded, as true as it may be, that physically it, it, was, it was better in those days than it is today. And that it is still foolish thing to say. It just ain't so to say that the old days were better than today. The only real good thing that can be said about the old days is that they are past. If you remember correctly, each of those old days was made up of good and evil, just as today is made up. And sufficient was the evil of those days. We don't need it today. The past is dead, no matter what we try to say about it. And we as a church need to remember this very clearly. But it is foolish to say this because of another thing. You see, God is the one who controls our time. And he does not make any mistakes. If the past would fit our need now, God would reach back and drag out the past and bring it to now. The reason he leaves it in the past is because it will not meet our need now. And he, in his wonderful love and infinite wisdom, has chosen today for us because it's the very best thing we can have. Now, having reminded us of what we should not say, 
And this talking about the good old days and the bunk that it really is, he goes on in verses 11 and 12 to point out to out the advantage we have from the good old days. There's an advantage that comes to us from the good old days. And if you look, please, at verse 11, he points it out to us. He says there, he says, wisdom along with inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. You see, he acknowledges that there are two things that we receive from the past that are a benefit to us. We receive the wisdom that comes from the past. We receive the wealth that comes from the past. Notice he says, wisdom along with inheritance is good. Then you will notice, please, that he makes an assessment of the advantage of these two things. And he tells us in verse 12, he says, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. Both of the things we receive from the past, both the wisdom we receive and the wealth we receive is a protection for us now. The word is shade. And those of you that have traveled in the desert and traveled in the hot countries where the sun beats down and just siphons off your energy. You understand the use of the word shade here. He is saying that wisdom is a shade. And it's so translated in the, uh, the NIV. He says, wisdom is a shade and money is a shade. But, then he adds, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Wisdom preserves life. It is better than the money. It is better than the wealth because wisdom preserves the life. But one must ask, what wisdom? You see, from the past, we receive two kinds of wisdom. Will you look with me over to the book of James, chapter 3, and verse 13? Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthy, natural, demonic. See, that's the one kind of wisdom that we receive from the past. And he goes on, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing, but wisdom from above. Now there's the second one. Not the wisdom that comes from the natural man, but the wisdom which comes from God. 
And he says that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. My friend, you have from the past received the inheritance of wisdom and wealth. And wisdom preserves the life. But what wisdom? From the past you have the wisdom of man. The wisdom that comes from man by means of his natural senses. The natural wisdom. The wisdom that man receives through his eyes, through his ears, through his taste through his handling of things, the wisdom that he receives through the instruments that he makes to enhance his vision and his ability to touch and feel things, the wisdom that comes from man's natural experience. We have that wisdom. But that wisdom is also influenced by Satan and by demons. And God tells you if you're working according to that wisdom, you have that which will bring disorder and confusion to your life. On the other hand, there is another wisdom. A wisdom which God has given to men through the work of inspiration. As godly men wrote down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and gave us the wisdom of God in the Word. And if you accept this as your wisdom and let this become your wisdom, you bring the Word of God into your heart and make it the fabric of your being. And you have this wisdom. You have that preserves life. And that is what he challenges us to see. Not to look back to the good old days and say, oh, they had it right, but to look back to the word of God that came to us from the prophets of God raised up to write the word for us. And we take this word, we thank the past for its gift of monies to us and the wealth which is a shade for us but more than anything else, we accept the wisdom that came to the prophets of old, and we accept this wisdom as the wisdom that came from God, and we store it in our hearts, and we live according to it. And it's not a street like the old days going nowhere. It's a street that leads to God. And then having pointed that out, he moves on. And in verse 13, he challenges us with the final contrast in this subject a contrast between prosperity and adversity. For why is it that we long for the good old days? It's because we remember the prosperity and the well-being of the good old days. I remember the feel of being able to have hands that were strong, and I long for the good old days. You and I remember the wonderful days when we met with our fellowship group and what a wonderful spiritual experience we had. We remember the joy of being with our young people in high school and how we rejoiced in the things of God in those glorious days. We remember the days in college when we stood up against the agnostics and the atheists and we were counted for God and we gave out our testimony. We remember those old days and we say, oh, what a wonderful, rich experience they were. The reason we long for them is because we're having it hard now. And so he deals with the very thing that is the real source of our problem that turns us off the way of God onto the side street of memory lane and keeps us from going on with God. What is it? It is this whole concept of adversity versus prosperity. 
And look at verse 13, he says. Consider the works of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. And he tells us three things relative to this whole business of prosperity versus adversity. As we look back at those old days and we think of the prosperity and the joy of those old days, we long for them because we're facing the adversity and the difficulty of the present. And then he says, remember God. And he tells us to consider three things. First of all, he tells us to consider the sovereignty of God's work. Look at verse 13. Look at it and memorize it. Consider the work of God. Who is able to straighten what he has bent? What God does, man cannot change. What God in his sovereignty over things has permitted to become crooked, man cannot straighten unless God helps him do it. What God has made straight, man cannot bend crooked unless God permits him to do it. Daniel chapter 4, verse 25 and verse 35 says this, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He does according to his will in the hosts of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? Now the Bible explains to us that the evil that has befallen mankind comes to mankind because man has chosen to live in rebellion against God. God created Adam on the earth, and his plan was to walk with Adam and to work with Adam and to teach Adam and all of Adam's children how to subdue the earth and to rule over it. But Adam had a different plan. He wanted to work it out on his own. And through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And Isaiah 45, verse 7 says, and it informs us that God creates evil to judge men for their And when God does it, there's nothing you and I can do about it. He is sovereign. When he chooses a day for us, 
and he chooses the content of that day and he chooses the experience of that day, you nor I can change it. What God has bent, we cannot straighten. The second thing that he reminds us of and he challenges us to consider is in verse 14. Look at it. He says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. He wants us to consider the diversity of God's work. First of all, we are to recognize that God who created for each of us days of prosperity is also the one who creates for us days of adversity. Both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity are the gifts of God. Let's not forget. We must remember they are the works of his hands. They are his gifts to us. Not only do we need to recognize that fact, we need to respond correctly. For notice how he tells us to respond. In verse 14, he says, in the day of prosperity, how do you respond? Huh? Be happy. Rejoice. Praise God. Glorify God. Thank Him. Enjoy the day of prosperity. Eat, drink, and be merry in that day of prosperity. God has given it to you. Enjoy it. Enjoy it to the hill. Then he tells you how to respond to the other day because he wants you to remember that just as he has given you a day of prosperity, he's going to give you a day of adversity. Now, what are you to do in that day? It says over here in verse 14, but in the day of adversity, smoke some pot. Take a shot of gin. Swallow a value. Go downtown and buy a new hat. Get involved in something that will cheer you up. Go out and have tea with the girls or coffee with the boys. That's what we do with them. God gives us the day of adversity. We look for ways to run away from it. After all, aren't we supposed to be happy? Isn't life supposed to be joyful? How could we possibly be miserable? If we're miserable, then we ought to do something about it. Let's get up on cloud nine and enjoy it. Cloud nine, 109, 119. Let's enjoy it. God says, wait a minute. I've given you days of prosperity, and I told you in the days of prosperity, be happy. Now, what are you to do in the days of adversity? Oh, how many times I hear this in the church. 
In the days of adversity, what do you do? Be happy. How many times I hear that? I say, how are you getting along, Harold? I say, miserable. Be happy, Harold, be happy. It's a, it's a, it's a bad day. It's, it's a day of adversity, Harold. Enjoy. Those people make my day. Don't you read the Bible? What does he say? In the day of adversity, what? Consider. Consider what? Why, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. In the day of adversity, consider. Consider what? This day of adversity is the gift of God to me. Now that means I'm supposed to be happy. When you're feeling miserable, you're feeling miserable. When your head aches and your stomach aches and your feet aches and the back aches and every part of the part of you aches, you ache. See? And when business is going the pot and you can't see how to put it together and together and, and somebody comes along and says, be happy, you say, look it, I'm worrying. And when you're worrying, you're worrying. Don't get all uptight and think you're a sinner because of it. But what are you to do? Consider that God has made that day. Consider that God gave you that day. There's another verse. Well, I am well aware. Don't come up and tell me it is. I am well aware, it says, and in everything gives thanks. I am also well aware of the fact that it says, Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice always. I'm well aware of that too. But again, have you read your Bible? It doesn't say rejoice in the day. It says rejoice in whom? The Lord. And that's the same thing that the Kohelis is saying here. In the day of adversity, consider that God has made this day especially for you. That's what he's saying. And I visited a dear woman one day, a friend of mine who had just lost her mother. I walked in the house, and I threw my arms around Florence. I didn't know what to say. What can you say? Her eyes were filled with tears. And she looked at me. And she said, Harold, it is so wonderfully true what the Bible says. God says, I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me. And he says, since mother is gone, I have forced my mind to think of Jesus. Jesus took her. 
Jesus is with her in heaven. Jesus is filling her present vision with joy. Jesus is the one who did it all. And I forced my mind to think of Jesus. And how I make perfect peace in God. And I remember last Sunday afternoon going down and visiting Bud Wood. He discovered that he had cancer in his body. And he didn't know how much. They knew that they was in his lung. Where else it had gone, they didn't know. And they were going to have to operate on him. And I walked into his bedroom, in that hospital room. There, stretched out on the bed, was Bud Wood. And across his face was one of the most beautiful smiles you ever seen. And I looked at him in wonder. Here he was, facing what to me sounded like a horrible thing. And his face was blossoming with joy. I didn't say anything to Bud. He said it to me. I didn't minister to him. He ministered to me. He said, Pastor Harold, God is in control of this thing. The cancer is not in control. God is in control. The doctors are not in control. God is in control. This day of adversity is a gift of God to me. And he was considering God. And his mind was stayed on God. And he looked at me and he said, I don't understand it. I'm not afraid. I'm not coming to pieces. I have purpose. See, there is a man who has learned how to deal not only with prosperity, but with adversity. With the prosperity, he is happy. With adversity, he considers God who gave it to him. And he fixes his mind upon God. And the peace of God, the path of understanding, filled his heart in the midst of the adversity. It's not lying there and longing for the good old days. It's not laying there and saying, oh, if I could only have had what we used to have. If my wife and I could only enjoy what we used to enjoy. No, it was accepting this day as a gift of God. Fixing his mind and heart on God. But experienced a miracle through his own mind and to his own heart. A miracle of peace and quietness. Though he was in the midst of great pain. You see, that is the whole truth of this matter. And he sums it up as he looks at that last phrase. Notice it there, he says, so that man may not discover anything that will come after him. The third thing we are to consider is that the, the fact of the mystery of God's work. You and I do not know what tomorrow will bring. We may make an educated guess about it. James chapter 4 tells us not to say, tomorrow I am going to do this and that and the other thing. Rather, it tells us that we are to say, if God wills, tomorrow I will do this and that and the other thing. Because you see, tomorrow is in the hands of God. Yesterday is past. Memory lane is a street that goes nowhere. 
today, be it a day of prosperity or a day of adversity, is the gift of God. And tomorrow, neither you nor I have any idea what it will hold, and there's no way we can know it. So what do we do? Well, if God has given you a day of prosperity, be happy. Later on this week, he's going to give you a bummer. You're going to have a day of adversity. And when it comes, oh, dear one, learn the secret of rolling down the highway of God. When it comes, don't look back and long for the day of prosperity. Consider God has given you that day. Fix your mind upon him and remember the great truth of all of us. We walk by faith and not by sight.